Hi, in this section we're going to look at maxillofacial trauma. So, let's begin. Question 1. What proportion of facial trauma patients have a C-spine injury? Ten percent of facial trauma patients also have a C-spine injury. What proportion of facial trauma patients have an ocular injury? Ten percent of facial trauma patients have an ocular injury. How can you test the medial canthal ligament? You can test the medial canthal ligament using the bowstring test. Here you pull the eyelid laterally and there is a lack of resistance suggesting the medial canthal ligament has been injured. What are the signs of a globe injury? There are three signs that indicate the globe has been injured. These are asymmetry of the iris, vitreous hemorrhage and hyphemia. What is a sign associated with a tetrapod fracture of the zygoma? If there is a subconjunctival no, sub hemorrhage without a posterior limit, this is a sign there has been a tetrapod fracture of the zygoma. What is the sign of optic nerve compression? A patient with an optic nerve compression will have red colour desaturation in that they'll be unable to discern the different intensities of red light. What's a Marcus gum pupil? In a Marcus gum pupil, if you were to perform a swinging flashlight test, the light in the normal eye would lead to bilateral pupillary constriction, but in the abnormal eye leads to dilation. What are the signs of a retrobulbar hematoma? The signs of a retrobulbar hematoma can include severe pain in the eye, progressive loss of vision, relative afferent pupillary defect or RAPT, proptosis, tense orbit, subconjunctival hemorrhage with no posterior limit, and periorbital edema. How is a retrobulbar hematoma managed?
A retrobulbar hematoma is a surgical emergency. If you suspect one, then inject lignocaine and adrenaline into the lateral canthus and make a 1-2cm to two centimeter cut in the lateral corner of the palpable fissure. Then take the patient to theatre for a washout once the pressure has been decompressed. What is superior orbital fissure syndrome? Superior orbital fissure syndrome is where there has been a force to the area of the globe leading to pinching of the neurovascular structures between the edges of the superior orbital fissure. This will lead to palsy of the third, fourth and sixth nerves as well as a nerve to levator palpably superioris, a relative afferent pupillary defect, madriasis and altered forehead sensation. What are the signs of an orbital apex syndrome? The signs of an orbital apex syndrome are very similar to those of a superior orbital fish syndrome in that there's palsy of the third, fourth and sixth nerves as well as the nerve to levator palpably superioris, a relative afferent pupillary defect, madriasis and, of, and loss of corneal reflex, altered forehead sensation, but also optic nerve signs which are not present with a superior orbital fissure syndrome. How is the diagnosis of CSF rhinorrhea confirmed? CSF can be confirmed by analysis of the fluid looking for beta-2 transferrin, neuroradiology imaging with intracanthal contrast, intrathecal, sorry, an intrathecal contrast, intrathecal injection of fluorescent dyes, and comparing the glucose in the fluid to serum glucose. What is the tongue blade test and what is it used for? The tongue blade test is a test for a mandibular fracture. Here, a patient bites on a tongue depressor, whilst the doctor tries to bend it to the point of breaking. This is not possible in a mandibular fracture due to pain. 
This test is very sensitive at 95%, but is only 65% specific. How are conjunctival wounds managed? Conjunctival wounds can be managed conservatively and left to heal by secondary intention. What is a frost suture and when is it used? A frost suture is usually a 3-0 non-absorbable suture placed medially through the tarsal plate and secured to the medial brow with tape. This is usually used for corneal protection. How do you identify a lacrimal canalincus injury? A lacrimal canalincus injury can be diagnosed by irrigating fluorescein-stained saline into the punctum and looking for dye within the wound. How is the lacrimal system repaired? The lacrimal system can be repaired by dilating the punctum using a Bowman probe, then intubating the injured duct with a silicon stent, and then suturing the duct closed around the stent, as in repairing the duct around the stent. How long should the stent be left in the injured duct for? The stent should be left in the injured duct for two to three months. What's the landmark for Stenson's duct? There are two ways of identifying Stenson's duct. The first is, it is in the mid-third of a line between the tragus and the corner of the mouth, or it is opposite the maxillary second molar tooth. Injury to Stenson's duct is often associated with injury to which other structure? Injury to the sensor's duct is often also associated with injury to the buccal branch of the facial nerve. What may result from an unrepaired Stenson's duct?
an unrepaired sensor's duct may lead to a parotid fistula or parotitis. When repairing the duct, how long should a stent remain in situ? A stent should remain within Stenson's duct for three weeks. Why are facial nerve injuries best repaired at 48 to 72 hours? Within 72 hours, the nerve will still be identifiable via stimulation. Describe the anatomy of the mandible. There are seven parts to the mandible. The alveola, which sits around the dentition. The symphysis, which is the most anterior part of the mandible. Behind this sits the body, which goes up to the angle. Above the angle, but below both the condyla and coronoid is the ramus. And then the mandibular condyle is posterior and the mandibular coronoid is the anterior projection. So now that we're talking about the anatomy of the mandible, let's talk about mandibular fractures. Which part of the mandible is most liable to fracture? A third of mandibular fractures are condylar fractures. The next most common part is the body and then the angle. After that, the parasymphysis, the alveolus, the ramus, and the coronoid process. And then finally, the symphysis proper. So the most common part is the condyle, followed by the body, followed by the angle. What fracture pattern typically results from a direct force to the symphysis? A direct force to the symphysis tends to result in a bilateral condylar fracture or subcondylar fracture. Fracture to the body are often associated with which other fracture?
Mandibular body fractures are often associated with contralateral subcondylar fractures. What are favourable and unfavourable mandibular fractures? Favourable fractures are where the muscle pull prevents displacement of the bone fragments versus unfavourable where the muscle pulls the fragments apart. What are the principles of mandibular fracture management? The principles of mandibular fracture management are restore occlusion, fix within 48 hours, provide perioperative antibiotics and early immobilisation to reduce the risk of infection. What is intermaxillary fixation, IMF? IMF is wiring teeth of the maxilla and mandible together. For which pathologies do we use IMF? IMF can be used for severely comminuted fractures, paediatric mandibular fractures, condylar fractures, and minimally displaced fractures. What are the problems with IMF? IMF can cause a risk of airway obstruction, difficulty maintaining oral hygiene, eating difficulties, and persistent trismus. What is the preferred method of management for most mandibular fractures? The preferred method of fixation for most mandibular fractures is an open reduction internal fixation, ORIF. Broadly speaking, what are the two basic types of fracture fixations for mandibular fractures? Broadly speaking, the two types of fixation for mandibular fractures are load-bearing, 
and load sharing. Load bearing is where the, the fixation bears the force of the function of the fracture site. For this you need large locking plates and bicortical screws. Load sharing is due to the friction between the bone ends and the implant which is being used for fixation. It's not usually possible if there's bone loss and usually is done with lag screws or compression plates and a monocortical screw. What are the indications for external fixators? External fixators can be used for temporary stabilization, if there is ex an extensive bony defect, or for osteomyelitis. How are mandibular fractures managed in children? The management of mandibular fractures in children depends on the age. In the under two-year-olds, this is managed with a splint. In the under four-year-olds, IMF for two to four weeks. In the under eight-year-olds, then the deciduous molars are used for IMF. And then in the nine-year-olds, they are managed exactly the same as adults. Where does the zygoma tend to fracture? Zygoma, uh, sorry, maxillas tend to fracture at as a tetrapod. So this is a fracture at the zygomaticofrontal suture, the greater wing of the sphenoid in the lateral orbit, the maxilla in the orbital margin, and the temporal bone. What is the classification of zygoma fractures? Zygoma fractures can be classified as A, incomplete, which is subdivided into an isolated zygomatic arch, A2, an isolated lateral orbital rim, or A3, an isolated infraorbital rim. B, a complete monofragment. This is the classical tetrapod, which accounts for 57% of zygoma fractures. And C, multifragment, which is 35%. How are undisplaced zygomatic fractures managed?
an undisplaced zygomatic fracture can be managed conservatively. What is a Gillies lift and what fracture is it used for? A Gillies lift is used for an isolated zygomatic fracture. An incision is made posterior to the hairline, down through the superficial and deep temporal fascias. A Gillies elevator is passed between the temporalis and the deep fascia. This avoids injury to the facial nerve. The fracture is then elevated and clicked back on reduction. What's the preferred technique for most zygoma fractures? The preferred technique for most zygoma refractors is once again ORIF. Okay, maxillary fractures. What are the three vertical buttresses of the maxilla? The three vertical buttresses of the maxilla are the nasomaxillary, the zygomatic, which is the body of the zygoma into the lateral orbital rim, and the pterygopalatine buttress. What are the three horizontal buttresses of the maxilla? The three horizontal buttresses of the maxilla, which, by the way, are less important than the vertical ones, are the infraorbital rim, the zygoma itself, and the alveolar arch. What is a Lefort 1 fracture? A Lefort 1 fracture is a fracture that passes transversely through 1. the piriform aperture, 2. the base of the maxillary sinus, and 3. the pterygoid plates. What's a Lefort 2 fracture? A Lefort II fracture is a fracture that passes across the nasal bones, then medial, then through the medial orbital wall behind the lacrimal bones, then out of the orbit over the medial portion of the infraorbital rim, under the zygomatic buttress, and then finally through the pterygoid plate posteriorly. And finally, what is a Lefort III? 
fracture. Okay, the four three fracture, which is also known as a craniofacial dysfunction, is a fracture through the nasofrontal suture, across the orbital floor into the inferior orbital fissure, along the sphenozygomatic suture line, through zygomatic arch laterally, and the pterygoid plates posteriorly. Moving on to orbital fractures. What happens to the orbital rim in a blowout fracture? In an orbital blowout fracture, the orbital rim is not usually involved. What proportion of orbital fractures have diplopia and what is the prognosis? Almost all orbital fractures, so over 95% have diplopia and most resolve within six months. What causes of diplopia are not self-limiting? Entrapment of the inferior rectus or orbital fat is a non-self-correcting cause of diplopia. And note that this entrapment can lead to bradycardia because of the ocular cardiac reflex. How are these causes of diplopia assessed? Entrapment can be assessed by local anaesthetic injection into the conjunctival fornices. Then the inferior rectus tendon is grasped through the inferior fornix and the globe should rotate upwards. Resistance is due to mechanical restriction. What is the difference between a blowout and a blow-in fracture?
A blow-out fracture is a fracture of the inferior orbital floor, whereas a blow-in fracture is usually a fracture of the orbital roof or lateral wall. And the other thing with blow-ins, it can cause impalement of the globe. What are the indications for surgery in orbital fractures? The indications for surgery in an orbital fracture are enophthalmos and certain cases of diplopia. Within enophthalmos, this is specifically due, or, or when there is an acute enophthalmos, a combined medial and inferior wall fracture, an isolated medial wall fracture with displacement of between 3 and 5 millimetres, and an isolated orbital floor fracture with an inferior displacement greater than 3 millimetres. For diplopia, this is diplopia with a positive forced duction test, diplopia and depression or displacement of the inferior oblique muscle origin, or an acute entrapment of the extraocular muscle, which can lead to avascular necrosis. Again, nasal fractures. What is the AO classification for nasal fractures? The AO classification for nasal fractures are 1. Laterally displaced fracture, which is the most common. 2. Posteriorly depressed fracture, and this is usually associated with a nasoethermoidal fracture. 3. Disarticulation of the upper laterals. And 4. An anterior nasal spine fracture. How are nasal fractures managed? Nasal fractures can either be managed early or late. The early ones, managed within 10 to 14 days, are formed when the initial swelling is low. There is, this is done by reduction using either septal straightening forceps, Walsham forceps, Boy's nasal fracture elevators or Killian's, and then the nose is packed. Or it can be done late once the nose has set and then osteostomies are performed. What are the three types of nasoorbital ethermoidal fractures?
The three types of nasoorbital ethmoidal fractures are type 1, which is a single large fragment including the medial canthal tendon, 2, a comminuted fracture, but the medial canthal tendon remains attached to the bony fragment, therefore can be stabilised with wires or plates, or type 3, which is like type 2, but the medial canthal tendon is detached from the bone, and this often requires nasal bone grafting. How are nasoorbital ethmoidal fractures managed? The management of nasoorbital ethmoidal fractures depends on the type. Type 1, which was that single large fragment with a which included the medial canthal tegment tendon can be managed with a plate between the fragment and the piriform aperture. Type 2 and 3 usually requires three-point fixation and can require a transnasal wire to reposition the medial canthal tendon. The frontal sinus. At what age does the frontal sinus pneumatize? The frontal sinus pneumatizes at two years old. What age does the frontal sinus stop expanding? The frontal sinus stops expanding between 15 and 19 years old. Where does the nasal frontal duct run? The nasofrontal duct runs from the posterior medial floor of the frontal sinus to the middle meatus of the nose. What are the management priorities for frontal sinus fractures? Frontal sinus fractures should be managed with a plan to restore the facial contour, avoid complications and to create a safe sinus. How are frontal sinus fractures managed? The management of frontal sinus fractures depends on the type of fracture. So, they can be managed conservatively if they are less than two millimeters displaced of either the anterior or posterior table, but not involving the duct.
the recommendation is an ORIF if the anterior table fracture, which doesn't involve the duct, but there is a risk to the facial contour. The sinus should be obliterated if it's a comminuted fracture of the anterior table plus or minus the posterior table, or there's mucosal disruption leading to a non-functioning sinus, or the fracture is interfering with the drainage system. Finally, if more than 25% of the posterior wall is involved, then the sinus should be cranialized. What's the sequence in managing a panfacial fracture? Pan facial fractures can either be managed from the bottom up, re-establishing the maxillomandibular unit as the first step, and note if the mandible is used to reduce the maxilla with IMF, then the mandible should be reduced or reconstructed first from condyle to condyle, or a top-down here where you start the reconstruction from the calvarium. And either way, the least comminuted side is fixed first.